I want to invite you to a familiar place this morning. It's familiar for me, at least, and I'm guessing it is for you. Um, It's going to be over here, and we're going to call this uh, the land of good intentions. You laugh because you've been there, too. You've been hanging out there for a little while. I know I have. Especially when I get out, uh, get out of the house yesterday afternoon and I'm shoveling, Dan knows because he drove by, um, shoveling the driveway. And it seems like every year I make this um, commitment, mental commitment to myself that I'm not going to um, wait so long after the snow falls that there's like a two-inch thick pad of ice where I've been driving over the snow uh, you know, for weeks now. I didn't even have that long, but still, uh, I, I managed to drive over it you know, maybe, maybe 10 times or so. Got a nice thick of, a pad of ice there. It seems like for all the good intentions that I have about shoveling the snow when it's still nice and, and light and fluffy, uh, I still find myself hanging out in the land of good intentions and not moving from there. I read a USA Today uh, reader's poll, so you know how accurate it is. Um, And it said that the average person reports that they give up, just outright give up on their New Year's resolution two weeks. Which, uh, fun, but that lands it on today, friends. Two weeks ago today was uh, was New Year's Day. Um, If you're still hanging on to your New Year's resolutions, congratulations, you beat the average. If you're like most of us, you've just given up by now after a couple weeks of this. It it seems like we come into the year, 2011, speaking for myself personally, this is the year I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to do it. My wife already signed me up. (laughs) 2011 comes and goes, and I find myself exiting the year, coming into a new year going... I hung out, I stayed in the land of good intentions. I didn't move on from there. This morning we're going to open up, uh, open up the Bible and we're going to read a story about another person uh, in this family history who hangs out, who stays, who remains uh, stuck in the land of good intentions. Doesn't move on from there. Uh, But before we do, I'd like to uh, just remind you about the series that we're in right now. The series that we're actually finishing off right now is called uh, Dysfunctional Families. Uh, And I know a lot of you have been around for a little while, but there's always always some guests joining us for the first time. The series um, is born out of the picture frame aisle in the department store where you walk through and there's hundreds, if not thousands of picture frames uh, hanging on the walls, all of them with a stock family photo in, all of them with a picture of a couple who's, uh, who's always happy, always smiling, usually doing something fun and interesting. They're never sick. They're never bored. They're never sick of being bored. <laughs> this is your stock family photo. And you look at this couple, and they're usually... Um, smart, attractive, happy, wonderfully engaged family. And you think, I want that for myself. And it leads us into that temptation to open up the Bible and say, how do I get it? And you might be so mistaken as to open up a place in the Bible, which is an entire book, 50 chapters, devoted almost entirely to one family. And you say, how, how do they do it? What's the biblical family look like? If you've been around, hanging around a couple times now, you can find um, it's a wreck. 
It's twisted. It's a disaster. This family brings uh, dysfunction to an entirely new level. We can only imagine what's going on in their lives, in their minds, in their hearts. But through it all, God is doing something. God is speaking. And if you're just joining us now, at the end of every uh, installment of this series, we ask the question, so... If God could work through a twisted, manipulating, deceitful family who shows ruthless favoritism, what could he do through yours? This morning, we, uh, we open it up to the family of Jacob. Now, sometimes he's called Israel. Just hang on to that. Jacob, Israel, same person. We're going to focus on him and especially his, uh, his nuclear family, which is him and his, we're going to focus, 12 sons. At this time, there's 11 of them that come into the picture. The, the littlest one either isn't born yet or is uh, too young to really be pictured. But uh, this one comes to us, Jacob, his littlest son, besides the one who's not talked about, is Joseph. We're going to see a couple of... A couple of things come into picture, but I just want to give you a sense right off the bat at, at just what living in this family is like. If you have your worship flow sheets, we're going to start reading uh, on the back. Now, his brothers had gone to graze their flocks near Shechem. This is Joseph's brothers. And Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off to the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are, grazing their flocks? They moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. But Joseph went after his brothers, so Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, come, let's kill him, throw him into one of these cisterns, a well, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. I'd like us to stop right there and ask a simple question. How do you get there? Right? As a nuclear family of a couple of girls, you don't hear much about those, but a dad and the, four, and the 12 sons, 11 of them talked about here. How do you get to the point where, where number 11 in the, in the sonship family comes and as they see him in the distance... Their knee-jerk reaction isn't, I hope he brought something good to eat. Or their knee-jerk reaction is, I wonder what he's going to tell us. The knee-jerk reaction that they have is, let's end him. I'm tired of seeing him. Other passages say that they could no longer speak peaceably about him. How does this family have to deteriorate so much, so far, that their knee-jerk reaction when they see him is, we have to end him now. That is a complicated story. I mentioned this uh, several layers of dysfunction going on here. And you almost have to ask, like, where, where do you even begin with all of this? But for, 
for Jacob, I think it begins with this, with this offense called favoritism. To imagine what their reality is like for just a moment. They, hear, they heard stories about their dad and what their dad did to their uncle. Their dad, remember, Jacob, their uncle Esau, uh, twins. Esau was born a short while, minutes before Jacob. The offense in the family is that uh, dad, Isaac, was uh, heavily, favor- heavily favored the older boy, Esau. Mom, Rebecca, heavily favored the younger one, Jacob. Now, as if this wasn't bad enough, everything would have, should have gone to Esau, the, the family inheritance. It was the responsibility of the oldest brother to take care of all the rest. Everything should go to Esau, but mom helps Jacob come up with a plan to scheme to swindle Esau out of that inheritance, take it from himself, not look after his older brother, and just start a new life somewhere else. The brothers are going, that's how my dad got his start. That's how my dad got seed money to turn all of this into what it is now. I wonder if that might happen to me. He's obviously capable of it. On top of this, add, add this to the, to the resume of favoritism. Jacob works seven long years to earn the right to ask for one woman's hand in marriage. After he earns that right, asks her, she says yes. On the night that they get married, he marries the wrong woman, her sister. After that, he works another seven years Marries the right woman. If you're keeping track, this is called polygamy. He's got two wives. That's one layer of the, uh, of the dysfunction that's going on in the family. That's one layer that we don't even have time to go into right now. Let's just say for the first marriage, alcohol was a factor. But anyhow, <laughs> after that, he, he marries not only the two sisters, he takes on their like, main household servants, uh, both Rachel and Leah's. If you're keeping track, he's got four now. He makes no apology. This is Jacob. Makes no apology at all that his by far favorite is Rachel. Rachel doesn't have any kids, though. They all have boys. And as those boys get older, there's ten of them now. And they've, like, staked out their claim in the family line. They've staked out, like, what they're going to inherit, what they're going to, what they deserve, what they've earned along the way. And then Rachel says, I'm going to have a baby. Isn't it wonderful news? So often we think about ter- things in terms of what this meant for Joseph, who that baby was. And isn't it such wonderful news that she struggled for just so long and a baby came to him and this Joseph turned out to be this uh, heroic, awesome person that like 20 chapters of the Bible is devoted toward. Isn't that terrific? Think about things in terms of the 10 older brothers for just a minute. Dad's favorite wife has a baby. Where does that leave me? Dad makes no apology that not only is Rachel his favorite wife, Joseph is his favorite son. The ten older brothers are going, where does that leave me? 
I remember what my dad did to my uncle to, to swindle him out of the birthright. The ten older brothers are going, we had a plan of what we were going to get when you kicked it. And we've, we've stuck around, we've stayed by your side, and we thought that we've earned it. But what now might you be capable of? This favoritism comes um, to a boiling point. Or something, maybe you've heard of it before. It's called the, the coat of many colors. That's actually a misunderstanding of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, colors there wasn't actually the word that's used at all. If you go to the original text in the Hebrew, it, it says something like a, a spectacular coat or just a, a, a wonderful coat, a, an ornamental coat. It's a little bit fuzzy, but one thing is for sure, it has sleeves. Kind of a throwaway detail on a coat, right? Especially as we got eight inches of snow this past weekend. It's like coats sort of are expected to have sleeves. They weren't in Michigan. They were in the Middle East. They lived in the desert. An ornamental coat with sleeves had some significance to it. Because as the ten older brothers are outside working in the fields, doing manual labor, tending the sheep, the the animals, whatever they had, by hand, Joseph was wearing an ornamental coat with sleeves on it, suggesting he had no business being out in the fields doing manual labor. He was most likely with his dad sitting inside, probably in the shade somewhere. It's not so much that they hated the coat. It's that he had a job where he could wear a fancy coat with sleeves on it while they're outside working like animals in the field. I mean, you want to talk about favoritism throughout all of this. I want us to see, friends, Joseph is a hard person to like. And then there's the dreams. Joseph walks up to his brothers. You guys should be happy for me. I had this dream where 11 bales of hay bowed down to me. Isn't this incredible? Aren't you? Yeah. We're really happy for you, pal. As if you wearing the coat, being dad's favorite. As if that all wasn't enough. Now we're going to bow down and worship. Joseph is a hard person to like. Not with what he says, but probably more how he says it. After all, that was turned out to be a true statement, a true dream that came fulfilled. But nevertheless, Joseph, a hard person to like. And and then, uh, topping off everything, in the passage immediately before this, uh, the, the murder plot, in the 11 or so verses in the first part of the chapter, it says Joseph was sent out, as he's often done, Which is another weird thing, right? Because he's only like a few years younger than his next older brother. But hey, dad sends him out. Go check on your brothers. He arrives and says that he brings back a bad report. The the, the grammar structure behind it all suggests it's not just like a general bad report. Hey, some, uh, some sheep died on our watch or something like that. It's not just the weather doesn't look good. They had to move grazing fields. No. It's a bad report about them. 
When Joseph gets sent out, he's not just checking on the fields. He's checking on his older brothers. And he comes back with a bad report about them. Joseph is a hard person to like. Before we go and we, uh, and we find out like the conclusion of the story, I, just, I think it's worth our time, maybe as a first takeaway, to, uh, to ask, wh- what do we do? How do we love people that we don't even like? Right? Because we fast forward all the way to the New Testament, and we find Jesus saying, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And we say, sometimes it's easier to love your enemies than like the guy in the cubicle next door who plays his radio too loud. Right? Like this question is in the air as everything that Joseph does, as the author points out, it is meant to like, it just grinds on his older brothers. Not that he's in the fault at anywhere, but, but just the fact that what he says and how he says it and the clues along the way, they just annoy them to his death. And I just can't help but, like, think of, you go into work, day in, day out, and it's a busy season or something like, and you go on early, you stay late, finally cleaning up, packing up the briefcase, the bag, whatever it is, and, and walking out of there. And as you're walking out, there's like a, there's a bounce in your step because for the first time, you're leaving this place while the sun is still up, and you're going, hey, I can still get a few things done this week. Or this, uh, this day, this evening. This is, this is amazing. And someone catches you on the way out and says, Hey, must be nice to be able to leave at five. Have a good one. How do you love people that are just so hard to like? I think we know. I think we find it all through the Bible story. I think every time we hear things about being slow to anger, quick to forgive, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, righteous kindness. I think we know how to love people. It's difficult to like. But that seems to hang out in this familiar place called the land of good intentions. Go there for a little while and don't mean to to make a stay out of it. I want to continue the story and hear about Reuben. Friends, um, this guy knows a thing or two about hanging out in the land of good intentions. We'll pick it up again, verse 21. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Um, Let's not take his life, he said. Uh, Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern, into the the dried-up well here in the wilderness. But don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. I just want to interject right there. Reuben is the oldest of the 12 boys, and he had some making up to do when it comes to uh, relationship with his father. Um, Way back in the story, it's, uh, it's recorded, it's mentioned, 
uh, almost as a throwaway comment, but coming up hugely significant here. Not only did dad, Jacob, have, uh, or also known as Israel, have four wives, he also had several mistresses on the side. And uh, Reuben actually um, sleeps with one of them. Like I said, um, layers of dysfunction on this family. We're just picking up a few threads throughout it. But Reuben sleeps with one of them. Uh, Dad uh, finds out about it. Jacob Israel finds out about it and essentially writes him off as like, you're dead to me. You're gone. You are no longer the oldest son that I have. We're going to go like right next down into line. And the older brothers, they knew about this. And they were not, they were not sorry to see this happen. Because, it was, you know, one, a big one falls and they could kind of all rise up in the ranks. So Jacob, or um, Reuben has some making up to do, not only with his father, but also he has to like somehow keep his brothers uh, around him as well. So you can see the plan that he's hatching here. Uh, not so much about saving the life of, of Joseph, although that could very well be. It's mentioned here. We'll read that line one more time. Um, Reuben said this, to rescue Joseph from his brothers and to take him back to his father. You can see he's got like a dual plan going on here. He's going to do the right thing. He's going to save his brother's life. But he's going to do it in a way that's not going to, that he's not going to lose face with his brothers. And he's going to earn back or, or patch up the wrecked relationship that he has with dad by saving the favorite son. Problem is, he didn't, go too, he didn't go far enough. So when Joseph came to his brothers, Reuben's out of the picture at this point, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. They took him, threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty, there wasn't water in it. And they sat down to eat their meal. They looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Camels were loaded with spices, balm, myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. Reuben isn't around to object. It goes on, later on, he comes back to the place where the last time he saw his brother alive. And he looks down into the pit and he's gone. He finds out the story and it says that he tore his clothes and cried out. I think that he had this realization about what it means to live in the land of good intentions. He wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to save his brother's life. But he like couples that with this need to not lose the brother's respect that they have for him. And he does that with a way that he, he wants to be the one that can save him, like get that respect to patch up his relationship with his dad. Trying to play both sides, he hangs out in the land of good intentions far too long, and it costs. Joseph, dearly. 
looking at just this story and then the bigger story, because this one continues. This is chapter 37. This one goes all the way through chapter 50, the end of the book. I think there's two conclusions that we can draw from looking at the, uh, the Reuben picture in this. Uh, two conclusions that we can draw when we look at what happens when we, land, when we hang out in the land of good intentions far too long. Number one, unending regret. At the end of the story, or getting closer to the end of the story, um, if you've heard some of it, Joseph is sold off to Egypt. Things get a little better, and then they get much, much worse. And he ends up in prison for years on end. He gets out of prison and works his way back up and now becomes like the COO of the entire uh, land of Egypt. He becomes a vice president. I mean, whatever it is, number two in charge. He is way, way up there. And as he's uh, up there, there's a, he has a dream. There's a famine in the whole world. There's gonna be a few good years and then seven bad years. And a famine in the whole world at that point. And so he starts stockpiling in the seven good years. And the famine years come. His brothers come after him. They don't know that it's him. And so he sends them on this wild goose chase, right? He says, takes one of them, locks them in prison, says to the other ones, if you want to buy grain from me, the only place in the world that has it. I want you to leave the brother here in prison, go back, get the littlest one, the new favorite, Benjamin, and bring him forward. Reuben hears this, and you want to know what his, his knee-jerk reaction is. Years and years go by. Decades go by, and his knee-jerk reaction, when he hears this terrible, terrible news, goes back to this moment, this moment, and said, if I only didn't hang out in this land of good intentions, if I would have acted strongly, if we didn't sell our brother, this would not be happening to me. This comes to Reuben so quickly. And, and you got to just wonder, how, how many nights was he up at night? How many nights did he toss and he turn, regretting that decision that he made? How many times did something happen to him and he thought, this is my fault. I never should have allowed that to happen to my brother. This lingering, unending regret that he has. I think that's all too familiar about what it's like to live in the land of good intentions. You know, God puts things on our hearts to do the right thing. Not just what's like politically able to be done, you know, to, to save face over here, but also patch a relation over, relationship over here. But to stand up and do something incredible. God puts these things on my heart. You know, share the Jesus story with a neighbor, with a friend, with a colleague. Invite them to church. Like, do something. And it's like, the time isn't right. I'll get there later. And we hang out in this land of good intention. There's unending regret there on Reuben's part. But we can't help but overlook just the massive missed opportunity the missed opportunity that he had. If he would have stood up, done the right thing, I don't know, who knows what would have happened, but he brings back dad's favorite son and says, I rescued him. 
There's an opportunity there to, to patch that relationship. There's an opportunity where the Joseph story goes so much differently, where he doesn't end up in prison for something that he didn't do, where he doesn't get sold into slavery, where he doesn't go so long without seeing his family that they don't even recognize him when they're standing in front of him anymore. But he hangs out in the land of good intentions far too long, and that opportunity is just passed him by. We could end right there. And we could like, okay, let's pray, stand up, adios, we'll see you guys. What's the moral of the story? Don't hang out in the land of good intentions. There's regret, unending regret, and there's huge missed opportunities. Remember that first word? Uh, From Genesis chapter 50. Uh, Joseph's story. Reuben's mistake, he tears his clothes again, uh, twice on record, uh, thinking about what he did to his kid brother. In Genesis 50, when they're confronted again, and this time they know it's Joseph, and this time they know he's alive, and they know he's going to save their lives, and they're going to move in with him. That passage, one more time. Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. At the very least, we have to admit that we are guilty of hanging out in the land of good intentions. I think with, with 10 minutes of good thought, we can come up with several places where God or someone else has laid something on our heart and we've not acted on it and we've always regretted. What would life be like? What opportunities have I missed because of that? If you're dealing with this unending regret over hanging out in the land of, uh, of good intentions for far too long... You should know, in Christ, God has forgiven you. It's probably time you let yourself off the hook. And secondly, with these missed opportunities, what would life have been like? Friends, what we intended to put off, what we intended for evil, what we intended for whatever, friends, God intends for good. At the end of the story, This twisted, manipulative, favoritist family. God tells a story that is so much bigger, so much richer, so much better than anything we could have come up with. We look back at our own missed opportunities. Yes, yes. But if God could do that with them... What might he do for us?